you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs definitive live pearl jam podcast happy 30 years to the sophomore record that really if 10 started everything and kickstarted and got them into popularity then versus was the statement album saying they're here to stay it's more important than you think and you talk to a lot of pearl jam fans out there that remember exactly where they were on that day when it got released to Tower Records or wherever anybody got their records at the time, Sam Goody, doesn't matter. Backstage discount music in Rome, Georgia. There you go. There's an answer. Exactly. Yeah, I remember exactly. Mm-hmm. So what we'll end up talking about today is a lot of the beginning of the Versus era. And really, back then, you can't really call it the Versus era. You have to call it the Five Against One era because that was the planned name for the album until they changed it a little while later. And that's where we're going to get into this legendary show, the first of its kind in Slims from May 13th in 1993. Now, they were recording for the record back in March they started. That was up in San Francisco. It's been well documented kind of how that went about and kind of Ed leaving a little bit. And there were things like softball games and Stone showing up in slippers. There's whole stories about how this record all came about and a little haphazard if you think about it. But at the end, they had a rocking 12 song album that was ready to just take charge and take over rock music. And this from this show was the first time that anybody really got to hear the majority of it. So we have an exciting show, obviously that on top of an amazing guest that we're going to bring in in just a second. So let's start this properly. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello. hello. So you kind of shared that's your experience of verses right there. Yep. I went to school, drove to the record store immediately after school. 
bought the CD. It was the CD with no title, with the weird case. Like, it wasn't like a normal jewel case. It had a weird, like, thing on the side. Versus? Of it and Is it not Vitalogy? Versus, that, yeah. Versus? Oh, yeah. I, was, that was Vitalogy. No, it had, like, a weird case on it. I remember it was very unique. And I remember, like, just going out to the parking lot, pulling out the orange CD, put it in the car, go starts, and I'm like, well, that's it. Like, this is my favorite song, and this is my favorite record right now. Yeah, look, I was in 1993, I guess I was seven, if I'm 37 right now. So I did not have that same experience, but I do remember the first time I did hear verses. I don't remember like my reaction to it, but I specifically remember that my brother, I was going in the car with him with another friend. I must've been 10 years old, 11, 10, pretty young, but that's when music really sticks with you back then. And he gave me a CD book. He's like, pick out whatever you want to listen to. And my brother's a fish fan. He's a petty fan. He's a Bruce fan. He's got a lot of stuff in his car. He's in college at the time that all of this stuff is coming out, and it's really the explosion of rock music and grunge music, of course. But he had some records I wasn't exactly familiar with, and I look, kind of get to the end of the book, and there's two CDs on the back end, and one of them is a Scottish band called the Soup Dragons, and I had never heard of the Soup Dragons before, but... I thought at 10 years old that that was a pretty stupid name for a band. No offense to Soup Dragons fans, I'm sure, are out there. So I looked, and it's like, okay, either the Soup Dragons or Pearl Jam. And I knew Pearl Jam. I I obviously knew what was on MTV at the time, but there was that orange glistening record. And I said, okay, well, I'd rather go with Pearl Jam than Soup Dragons. So that's what we did, and that's my earliest memory of at least listening to the record, even though I don't quite remember any of the songs. I I think I'd probably have previously known Daughter and maybe something else, but I think that was it. So, a little bit different. Now, we're going to bring in Kathy Davis in just a second, but laying a little groundwork for this, this was a surprise show, and it kind of went through some ups and downs that we're going to talk about of whether or not it was going to happen, whether it wasn't going to happen, and kind of went back and forth and back and forth. But it was also the band did not want anybody to really know about it, so they went under the moniker, this is the first time that they had done this, the David J. Gunn Band. And David J. Gunn, for those who are unfamiliar, he was a doctor in Planned Parenthood, and he was murdered in Pensacola, Florida, where he worked. So that was something that... You know, they had a benefit for later in 1994 and did that benefit. And it was something that was on their mind, obviously, being the pro-choice band that they are and supporting women that they've always been, that that was what the name of the band was going to be. We're going to get into what the benefit factor is in just a second, but I don't want to delay this any further because let's invite one of... And I'm just going to flatter you right here. I don't care. I'm just going to give you all these titles. (laughs) One of the most influential people in this community going back to this era that we're going to talk about from doing the footstep zine to then taking over for two feet thick, which was extremely important. And Kathy, you are 
I mean, you're a legend within what we do and a lot of what we do, we can't do without what you started very, very early on. So we, I mean, a lot of the information that we're going to talk about right here, Kathy dug up from her zine and I didn't know maybe like 50 to 60% of it. So this is invaluable to us. Kathy Davis, oh, I've been waiting for so long to get you on the show, and uh, I'm just so happy that you're here. Yeah, you make me blush, you who was seven years old when this album came out. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> no, we, we're thank honored you. to have you. Thanks for doing this. Very kind yeah. of you. Thank you. I'm glad I sent the two pages, too. It just occurred to me this morning. I'm like, oh, shit, I better dig this out. So that's great. And, um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. You guys are just amazing, and I love what you do, and I'm honored to be on here. So thanks. And you're one of the earliest supporters, too, going back to when we really kicked off Fenway in 2018. I remember when you were handing out flyers outside of uh, Fenway Park, my friend, before you <laughs> even had an episode recorded. So I think I'm a grassroots member. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I was I don't very happy for you. I don't think I knew that day who you actually were. I knew that you'd been to a lot of shows and I knew that you, you <laughs> followed the band, but I don't think I knew how much you did for this community, which is just well, thank you for again, that. invaluable. I loved it. I was honored that Karen Rose asked us to take over Five Horizons. And that's how John and Jessica and I started Two Feet Thick and did that for about 10 years. And that was a wild ride too. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, when you have a passion for something, as you well know, you just follow it to the nth degree and Pearl Jam certainly drags that out of us all, don't they? <laughs> we just want to sure know more and do more and see more shows and it's good to have the memories small and important mention though the site where they recorded was in san rafael which oh, is north you. of san francisco yeah i kind of knew i botched that i kind of uh, knew you know, i botched that bay area whatever marine county's <laughs> a little bit north of san francisco but yeah hey super east close. coast everything is new york city over here it's all know. new york city boston and philadelphia whatever you know <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you said it <laughs> Let's kind of start with just like you and your personal intake of the show, because you were there. However, you weren't quite there, but I think you can say that you were actually there. So when did you find out that Pearl Jam was doing this and how did it all kind of come about of you showing up that day? Yeah, I mean, it's multi-layered. I had obviously doing the fanzine. I thought I was in the know, but I also had a friend that worked at Tower Records Pulse, the free magazine that Tower put out, who was also a massive Pearl Jam fan. And she had heard about it too. And obviously I get SF Weekly and there was a little blurb in SF Weekly saying that the show was going to happen. That's like an independent free newspaper. So, you know, it was out there, but me being the cocky fanzine editor that I am thought, well, if they were doing a show, I surely would have heard of it. So I, I was real lackadaisical about going up there or trying to get tickets. And literally the only way to get tickets, you had to line up right before the show and they handed out the tickets. And then you came back and went in. And we missed that window by like an hour and a half by the time we got up there. So there was no hope in hell of getting in, but we still wanted to, you know, experience the vibe and a lot of really cool stuff happened. I mean, we got to see, <laughs> we got to see um, Stone and Jeff arrive in a Lincoln Continental, which was weird, but looking very uncomfortable. We got to see a friend of mine, kind of knew Dave Abrazis and talked to him, amazing human being as an aside. And yeah, so we were really vibing and enjoying the atmosphere, but we weren't going to go anywhere when that show started because knowing the venue, the way I did living in the Bay Area, I knew that we'd be able to hear the show if we just hung out. 
So there's a window right where the stage is at Slim's. It's a wooden window, but they always crack it open because it's hotter than hell in that place. And they had it cracked open and I knew we'd be able to hear it just as well, if not better, because we were hearing the monitor sound as well as some of the stacks. So we did. And we got to, he was crystal clear. A friend of mine that was with was a regular show taper and had his gear with him and just stuck his microphone in the window crack and let it hang there and got one of the widely circulated boots <laughs> documented. <laughs> That's still in circulation now, I think. Um, really amazing. we're going to use for this episode, absolutely. Hey, probably his, yeah. Really amazing. So it was a great experience just hanging out and listening. And I'm like, you know, when you hear a song that's not even out yet and they're playing it live, I mean, my mind was literally blown. I was like basically a melting mess on the sidewalk. I don't know what I would have done if I actually would have seen them play because just hearing it was so mind-blowing for me. But yeah, that was my experience. So I was there, but I was not there, so... <laughs> Now, do you remember, because you got to think, like, they did, I think it was eight or nine debuts. Let me see. Let me do some counting, though. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I counted eight. Nine. I got nine. And then Hard to Imagine is technically the first real Hard to Imagine. and, Mm -hmm. And then, like, Daughter wasn't really circulated that much. I think you probably went to the Bridge School show, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, you you knew it, maybe his brother, but you you still knew it. That was Did my you, first Pearl Jam show. There you go. There you go, and kind of yeah. nice little bookend for that. Um, there you go. So with so much going on, and so especially right from the start, it's even flow, and then surrounded by six other songs that either you heard before or you've heard only once. So were you able to kind of remember anything and be like, that's one I really want to go back to, or did it all just blend together? Like everything you heard was going to be amazing. No, I remember specifically. Thank you for that. Cause it's good to walk down memory lane with this stuff in a way. Yes. Yeah, some of it did kind of mosh all together in my brain, but very specifically WMA, which we were calling policeman blew my mind in my wildest dream. I could never imagine that this band that I loved could play something so tribal. Those drums are just funky, tribal. And I mean, I know Stone is a funky guitarist. He's got the groove, but the combination of just everything in that song and then the lyrics being so very Ed, I'm like, this is like the perfect marriage of everything I love about my band. They're making something they've never done before that I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. We were all kind of just standing out there with their mouths hanging open going this is Pearl Jam what's happening right now yeah if you remember like paint a little bit of the picture of you guys like you're with some friends maybe hanging outside are you trying to keep a low profile are you trying to dance around are you just trying to keep the excitement trying to pay attention like what what was it like being right outside for this yeah it was I don't want to get thrown out and so it was yeah we were just kind of respectfully listening and like silently reacting, like making faces at each other and going, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> it was one of those things like you're almost in church and you don't want to like disrupt the mass. So, Cause we just didn't want to get booted because we really wanted to stay. And they asked us to leave, I think once or twice and we just didn't, and we weren't rude about it. We just didn't leave. And I think it was one of those plus, you know, you're having a meltdown because you're hearing your band, hearing your favorite band in the world play all these new songs going, ah, you know, so it was a lot. But yeah, we just didn't want to get thrown out because we wanted to hear the whole show. And we did. 
good for you guys. And yeah, yeah. The, the venue has to know, like, this is a big deal. Was there a huge crowd around you or was it you and the taper yeah. and a couple other people? There was probably maybe 10 to 15 people. That's not too bad. That hung out. The first like weaklings left after they said, you guys got to go. <laughs> and we're just like, I'm not going to leave. Sorry. You know, and we weren't rude about it. Like I said, we just, we knew how to play the game. So we played the game. Very, and, uh, very nice. I'm so glad because like I said, I mean, I met my best friend on the sidewalk when alone started. Cause you know, you gotta be a Pearl Jam fan to know alone. Right. I mean, at that oh, point yeah. in their career, <laughs> you oh, gotta yeah. know that's not one that it's for the hardcores. And she was leaning against the wall with her eyes closed, singing the song. And I'm like, okay, gotta meet her. <laughs> so, <laughs> and here we are 30 years later going to shows and loving, you know, she's my sister. So yeah. Literally, literally saw you a month ago, almost to the day. Yes. Yes. That was delightful. And here we are all these years later. So yeah. Um, it was an amazing experience just to be able to hear these new songs. And they were so good. I mean, you've probably listened to the boots a million times, right? I mean, I can't believe how well formed they are. I mean, obviously they've been hammering the hell out of them for for two months. Something's gotta come through, but I was amazed at how strong they seemed. Which ones were the ones that stuck out to you? Well, Blood Did Go was the one that really grabbed me, because I mean Animal and Go, they started off just oh, one-two yeah. punch. And to this day, Go is top five all-time favorite Pearl Jam song. I don't know if it's because of that moment, hearing it on the sidewalk, but I'm like, I was just overwhelmed at how amazing and musical and intense. And it, it, just, it was just perfect to me. I might have rose-colored uh, earphones on when it comes to Pearl Jam, but <laughs> I thought it was perfect. And yeah, Animal and Go that really stood out there was a couple they were kind of struggling i'm like what's happening but i still was so happy to hear it i didn't care so some of this information that we just uncovered 30 years ago that you wrote this and again invaluable information can't just thank you enough for for pulling it out but there are a couple things here so as far as we knew it was a benefit for surf rider but we didn't know the full situation talk about what the actual benefit was for. Yeah. On the marquee, it said David J. Gun Band. So all of the guesses about whether it was for that guy who threw garbage into the ocean and got kicked out of the Navy, or if it was for Surfrider were out the window. Because David J. Gunn is that abortion doctor in Florida who was killed. And incidentally, he's from Pensacola, which is Mike's hometown. So mm -hmm. that added another layer of importance to it and knowing how fervently the band supports women's rights. And there was even a flyer. If you listen to the boot, I think Ed says something like, did you all get the flyer? I think right before Alive. Yeah, I think there was, I, I never actually laid eyes on the flyer, but I know there was one around talking about what it was about. So I'm sure that that was on there. Now, how about all these, like, is it on, is it off? Is it on, is it off? Talk a little bit about that story because it seemed like just from reading it that the band really didn't want anybody to really know about it. And then the newspapers kind of got into it. Then they said, no, or we don't want anybody there. And then there was something with Cindy Lauper. So talk a little bit about how all of that sort of went down. Yeah. I mean, it was in SF weekly and it said that they were going to be there and the tickets were five bucks. And so I think once that hit the streets, then they decided it wasn't going to happen. Cause I think there was, I mean, Pearl Jam Mania was at an all-time high at this point in their right. careers. 
And I can understand them not wanting to create chaos. They were very cognizant of that in crowds and at shows. I mean, we all know the number of times Ed stopped shows and certainly didn't want to create chaos out on the streets of San Francisco, especially (laughs) where Slim's is. So it's kind of skirting the tenderloin a little bit, but yeah. So I can understand that they would want to not play. Well, yeah, it sounded like the announcement of the cancellation actually helped it happen because then the band was like, oh, well, maybe not as many people will show up so we can go ahead and play. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly got faked out by that. And I don't know how long before the scheduled date that Cindy Lauper was canceled or postponed. So part of me was like, well, was it because of that? But I don't think so. I mean, it wouldn't be that last minute. So yeah, that that's all I remember about it is that is it happening? Is it not happening? Well, I guess it's not happening. And I, I was one of the ones who fell for it and didn't show up until, oh, you know, maybe five o'clock in the, the afternoon when they had just uh, given out the last ticket. So, <laughs> But I, I kind of now the story of why they did the snippet of girls just want to have fun makes a whole lot of sense when doing yeah. the notes for this. I just thought that maybe somebody in the crowd shouted it when they were doing requests. <laughs> You know, Ed, he's always got his finger on the pulse. So (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yep, he's saying the whole pretty good snippet of that on there, didn't he? Too funny. I can volunteer just if you don't mind me just kind of talking about the vibe of the Bay Area, them being in my quote unquote town in the area for you know two months as a fanzine editor who was passionately into Pearl Jam enough to do a fanzine. (laughs) It was really cool to have them on my coast, like in this area and we were always looking for where are they going to be? What are they going to do? And I know Ed and Stone showed up to Fugazi on Fort Mason. And I actually ran into Dave at an Allison Chain show and talked to him. And he said that he had gone to see Sting and they were having a good time. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. And then I, I know that there was that blurb in the paper. Bam was a Barry music magazine that Mike and Jeff went to see American Music Club and played with them. So they were, you know, getting out and doing some fun things while they were there. And it was really cool to see that. They're in my Bay Area. I love it. So that was kind of fun. Oh, I love American Music Club. That would have been super cool to see. Oh, my God. I did, too. I went to see them several times because they're from here. As a really fun aside, Jeff drew a cartoon for their fan newsletter. Have you ever seen that? No. No, I don't believe so. Yeah, I'll have to lay that on you sometime. He drew a little drunk dude in there. That's awesome. I'm like, oh my God, Pearl Jam Obscurities. Yay. That's my next (laughs) fanzine, pearljamobscurities.com. Yeah, that's my next site. (laughs) I'll just start going through the 30 boxes of Pearl Jam collected paper that I have in my closet right now. (laughs) We'll just put it on our site if you want. There you go. (laughs) We'll do the unboxing YouTube video. Yeah, unboxing. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. There's so much stuff in there, you guys. I'll have to take pictures and show you sometime. It's scary. Well, you have, I mean, if I can fly to the Bay Area right now and just look through this all with you, I'm sure there will be many, many gems. But, I mean, anytime that you have free time and would love to share this, we can get the word out and we can put it on our site if you'd like us to. But this is just, again... We thank you so much for joining us and doing this and talking to us because it's just um, going to be a broken record. It is invaluable information that we sit here and intake. I just, out of a lot of the shows that we've done, 
we were lucky enough to find somebody that was at Unplugged. Oh, yeah. I didn't think we were going to find somebody for this one because I thought it was way too random. But Ah, I got lucky. We did get very, very lucky. And not only was it somebody that was there, but somebody that truly knows what they're talking about and kind of within what you had was able to kind of refresh your memory and everything like that. So thank you so much. Yeah. Happy to share however I can. And I'm interested to see what other coverage you do about versus too. So that was a lot of fun talking to Kathy that just, again, all that that came up, it's really hard to find most of the stuff while surfing the internet, but this is why you keep stuff. This is why you do things while it's happening, because at some point you're going to need it back again. Yeah, I mean, the foresight of people to be the archivists and save the stuff that they collected from 30, 35 years ago, it's a treasure trove for us. Like, she talked about 30 boxes of Pearl Jam stuff. Like, yeah, who knows what's in there? Well, I can't wait to see. Everybody that came from that part of the Pearl Jam fandom that did zines, that even did like, you know, bootleg trading and, and taping from, of course, Five Horizons, of course, Two Feet Thick. Again, just like when you love something that much and you put this time that you invest into this, it's just going to later down the years when somebody else is going to share that love. It is so valuable to them to have this and and be able to uncover these stories again, because you just never know. There could be episodes that we've covered before. I know that there probably is that maybe there's some information that she had and we never tapped into it. So you just never know. And I'm glad that we got the full, full stories for this. Yeah, thanks to Kathy for taking the time. And then, like I said, like, talk to her about supporting the podcast and being around at the beginning, like, for being a friend. And, like, yeah, that's amazing that she's still involved at this point. She's one of the nicest people you'll ever come across. She really, really is. It was wonderful to get to see her again and Shannon again in Chicago. And, yeah, it just kind of brought me back. Because that day, I believe, was like a day before or day after the anniversary of Live on Four Legs, so it was kind of coming full circle in a way. So it's just very, very cool. So we did actually end up finding somebody that went to Slim's, and it was somebody that had shared on the forums. Asked for a little bit more information, but I think what he gave us at least is a little bit more insight to what we're covering today. So this is from Brush Daily said it had a buddy that worked in a stockroom at a Sony satellite office in San Rafael. He called me about the secret show at about 4 p.m. as I was planning to stay up all night to study for finals. It was only junior college, so who cares, right? Quite a religious experience if there ever was one. Obviously, I'm still lurking here 30 years later. I was on the rail, quote-unquote, the entire show. Remember it like it was yesterday. Ed premiered his new haircut and something else. Oh yeah, their whole new album. As amazing as the show was, I remember being so disappointed that my favorite band had spent the last three months recording their album five minutes from my house, and I had no idea. I had missed my chance to somehow join the crew or the band, maybe as a triangle player or a Boston dancer. 
Oh, what could have been. Thank you for sharing that, Brush Daily. Really appreciate it. And I hope you gotten a chance to listen to this. So yeah. I'll get it out to you. So one of the most interesting things looking back on this is that you kind of think today, and especially you go to this year and you know that a new album is coming out in 2024. And there were a lot of rumblings. Oh, are they going to debut something? Are they going to, what our appetite for the new record? And in those eight shows, they didn't. You know, I think a lot of people were looking forward to that, but also we were given a lot in place of that. So there is this whole idea of if it's on the internet, everybody knows about it in three seconds or less. And back in 1993, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case at all. They couldn't do something like that. Like this had to kind of go word of mouth. And once zines came out and got passed around, there was really no boards in 1993, I wouldn't think. So let's talk a little bit about how that era kind of ended once internet and rumors really started becoming a thing. Now, John, let's hear from you here because we're going to take a passage from PJ20, right? Yeah, we always like to consult with the Bible in times like these. And if everyone will turn to page 107 in their PJ20 book, there's a quote from Jeff. Jeff says, talking about the show, says that was before the internet, so we didn't have to worry about bootlegs getting out at that time. Hmm. It's too bad you can't do more of that now. Work through songs without the rest of the world hearing them within an hour. We were working on rough mixes that morning, so we loaded up our gear and drove into San Francisco. Right after the show, I drove all night and the next day to Las Vegas to see the Grateful Dead and staying with my brother. Look, I think after the Honkin' Seals, that was really it for surprise shows like that. I can't remember if Bellingham was a surprise or not, but, you know, that's kind of right there on the edge of that. But, yeah, that's why we can't have nice things anymore, because nobody can keep any secrets, right? But, uh, But little did they know, someone had a microphone in the window and recorded the whole thing for us. I mean, look, if this was in 2023, everybody would have known about it immediately, but the taper had to go back and they had to make some edits and obviously start to duplicate and pass it around. And that is no easy task. It took probably weeks to really set something up. So things kind of materialized a little bit slower back then, of course. Before getting into the actual set list, let's kick it over to Javier because today he's going to do just one little piece and he's going to do it about this era. He's going to talk a little bit about how the songs change from this original moment here where they're playing them in a really raw fashion. And he'll talk about even some of the differences between what Dave A was doing on these songs and what Matt does on these songs. So, of course... More invaluable information coming from a guy that is our most invaluable source. So, Gear Guru segment, let's take it away. Hey, Randy. Hey, John. Hey, everyone on the podcast. So, as you guys know, this show was the first opportunity that fans had to listen to Versus songs. Animal, Go, Dissident, etc., Equipment-wise, I think we have covered what they were using around that time. So I think my focus point is going to be something a little different this time. It's amazing to me to hear this kind of track in 1993 and just compare it to something that we heard now in 2023. 
these songs have evolved so well, but I think they were always thought to be presented in a live setting. I think this band does that perfectly fine. I think they're geniuses on that. I think they will always think in, okay, if we're going to record this, what's going to be the approach? How are we going to play this live? Major differences that I can hear, the majority of them, they were in Go. Dave hits the hi-hat a little different. It, it kind of like cuts the pace a little bit more. Then with Matt going into the band in 98, it's about pace, it's about the intensity. Same thing with Animal. Animal hasn't had a lot of changes over time. There's one major change, though, in between 1993 and now, which is after the chorus, they just skip one part and they just skip the part that Mike is doing that little riff, like, just to go to the power chords and then back to the main riff. It is also very surprising to hear that even though that a lot of people think that Pearl Jam is a high-gain live performance or a live band, it is not. The guitars are not very distorted. The guitars are not very driven. It's more about like the execution and the groove that they're trying to get to the songs. And also the amps were set up in a very bassy setting. That's at least what I can hear coming from the recording. Even though that is an audience recording, it's a pretty good take. And you can get like really good flavors of what was going on. Some subtle changes over time too. When it comes to Stone, it was not as crunchy as you will hear them now. It was more about like that classic kind of Les Paul over a Marshall amp tone, a little bit more bright. Try to think of Slash if you want to have that kind of reference. Mike has always been kind of like the Strat guy. You can hear it very, very clear on Animal, especially when he's using that neck pickup. But yeah, we wanted to take a different approach since it's a shorter show than what we usually do. But getting one focus point, it will be kind of unfair for how special this event was. So we wanted to take more like a different view of maybe thinking of the evolution of a song. Hint, hint, if you haven't heard the evolution of the evolution episode on Patreon, please go for it. It's an amazing episode. John and Randy did an outstanding job. And yes, South American crowds are the best, hands down. No competition over that. Uh, my opinion is biased, though. But yeah, we wanted to take a different approach. It's not focusing amps pedals stuff like that more about the interpretation of the song and that was my take on that so really hope that you can enjoy it and yeah that's all for this week all right thank you javier be sad not to tee you up once more in the show but i believe next week we'll be able to get to some more good stuff so can't wait to get to that and hopefully that gear garage that's coming out at some point in the future very can't wait there is a sound check for this show. I didn't have a lot of time to go through all of it. There are two things that I was able to hear that are worth bringing up for discussion. One of them is there was this little mini interview that was happening. Seemed like with Stone. What did you take out of that? It's definitely someone who knows what they're doing because he's like kind of tease himself up a little bit and like ask some pretty pointed questions, but. Yeah, it talks about, like, how the show came together, how the recording's been going. Stone's just kind of like, yeah, okay, like, not giving him too much. And then kind of as it goes on, he starts to pay attention, like, okay. But, yeah, it's mostly the the stuff about recording over at, like, you know, quote-unquote, the site, the really, like, swanky recording place they were at. Stone talks about that a little bit, and it's really kind of revealing as to what we know. 
and then we'll be find out it kind of confirms some things that we knew about how that was going but yeah that's really the most interesting part i don't know that i've ever gone back and heard that before going back and doing this yeah that was all kind of a new reveal and everything like that but also i think a new thing to me in the sound check was it sounded like stone was doing a little noodle of crown of thorns did you catch that no oh yeah it's in there only a couple of years after everything happened with mother yeah. Lovebone, but it's interesting to see that he's thinking about that at the time and not kind of repressing that a little bit. And obviously that would be the most important mother Lovebone song moving forward into 2000, of course. So it's, it's a cool little almost like sign for what's going to happen. All right. Well, you got a lot of information there now. You're going to hear a lot of debuts, you guys. And we're going to kick it off right here. Ed takes the stage and says, we're just going to play for a little bit. Nine live debuts on the night. Animal is the first. Right from the jump on this, you hear those first notes of Animal, and it feels like you already say, if this is the new album, give me everything from this. Animal completely is one of those songs, and obviously it was one they focused on a whole lot in 1993 and 1994. They were really, really feeling it on this, but you could tell right from the start, like if this is the kind of record that they're putting out, this is good old fashioned rock and roll hits you hard ed going all out with his voice it's dave pounding away it's mike starting to scream with the solo although mike's solo has evolved a little more this lays out the groundwork for what that song would eventually turn into it's extremely confident maybe one of the most confident of all the versus songs that we're about to hear but what did you think about this yeah, I think there's definitely a reason that you open the show with this. It bridges the gap from 10 to verses very well. I mean, this is one of the original ones from the Stone demo. And this performance, I think it has got Stone's footprint all over. Like, 
he's doing that upstroke riff even continues it longer than we were used to hearing it really quickly after this they would play it a lot faster but this one just fits in that total stone groove that you know like he has his hands all over this thing i love listening to stone play this again you're hearing this for the first time if you're in kathy's shoes or brush daily's shoes you're blown away from the start it's like yeah let's fucking go let's get this new record into our hands now why do we have to wait for five months do you think that maybe the original track listing at the time was animal indigo especially because the record was supposed to be five against one because that's what we get here it's i could see them debating it sure so ed says right here before going indigo who's the one that couldn't keep a secret and just says these are some new songs so you hear go after you hear animal and you have to think to yourself this is going to be the greatest album of all time from the seams immediately has that same kind of identity that we were talking about with animal just very confident and they were very kind of consistent with it over the years like this one it could have gone in a direction where it sort of spun out of control because it is a really fast song you have to be really really tight on it both mike and dave really have to be locked in with one another and be able to fly at the end there but after this you notice the crowd too there's absolutely a buzz happening from this and they are saying oh if this is something new if these are new songs yeah we're on board give us the whole album tonight and we're in yeah i mean me being a 15 year old in georgia after pearl jam exploded there were millions of kids who immediately went to think like oh we can't wait to hear the next one and you know the story goes if you're in a band you have your whole life to write your first album you have six months to do the second one and a lot of bands fall into that sophomore slump where the second record is not nearly as good as the first record and i think getting go and animal on is immediately a mission statement of like we're angrier now we're faster we're louder this is only going to go on from here like we're going to be a force to be reckoned with and you know we saw these two songs back to back on a lot of these shows in 93 and i think that's to make a statement we're starting to put 10 behind us if that was the band you thought we were then hold on because we're moving up 
Yeah, that's kind of what you were saying right there with the sophomore album. That's kind of what I was teeing up really, really early on in this episode. It is extremely difficult. Look, you grab a hit with your first record, and you have to have a good record after that, or else you're not going to trend upwards. The radio's not going to play it. MTB's not going to put you on the airwaves. It's happened to hundreds of bands that couldn't keep it up for the first record. Yeah, Right, and then you're done, essentially. You know, now it's a little bit different because I think now bands have a little bit more control of what they do. Like you can start independent now and just kind of keep writing your stuff and keep putting it out there. And then, you know, maybe it's more common for a band to really blow up on their third or fourth record now. But back then, when every label out there was a major record label like Epic, you needed to keep up or else the label was not going to go to bat for you. They were not going to put your songs out there. They were not going to go to radio stations and say, please play this. They were going to say, all right, well, we'll sit on the next however many records you have in your contract. And on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, this is going to be the only 10 song in this first seven, but I'm going to package it together with blood. So even flow is going into blood. I think that's probably a great decision. It feels almost like it could be information overload if you have just seven brand new ones straight in a row. And I know they did that in the show box for no code, but still give them even flow. They're going to be bouncing really early and Mike and Dave sound really, really good on even flow. It certainly works here. Yeah, even flow had a little bit more bite, I think, at the show. And maybe that's just hearing it in between Go and Blood will do that. But yeah, Stone and Jeff were playing with a little extra bite. But this is where even flow is going to start to change and become something else in 93. It's not going to be the slow, like, groove thing that it was based on. You're seeing that a little bit start here. Blood comes off a little rocky at first. But the minute that Ed opens his mouth on this... Oh boy. that angst and ferocity that just bursts he's absolutely hollering every single word and that's something in 1993 you think blood at the fourth song in any era that's not 1993 or 1994 you'd be insane to do that but back here that is what ed wants to make a statement on be like i'm going to shove this down your throat early that i think is so rare when it comes to the song a little bit later that you just can't fathom. It's usually the closer or close to the closer of a main set or an encore when it came to later. But number four, oh, all bets are off. 
Yeah, and like the third Versa song that you're hearing, I mean, after Animal and Go and then Blood, you're like, are they a hardcore band now? Like, what is happening? Because like, Daughter is going to be next, and that's definitely a change. But there's other types of stuff on this record. But if you're just hearing these three songs in the set, you're like, oh my God, like they have gone insane and like everything is super fast everything is super angry that's all you're getting early on like that's what you want out of a second record for a band like this and oh my god it just would have been freaking out i mean how anyone up front was able to keep it together i just would have been blown away yeah i kind of had that same thought about just the way that they were packaging those three songs right from the start and then going to the daughter wma and dissident which are more eclectic and it kind of shows you right from those first seven okay this is gonna have a couple of different ideas that are thrown out there and obviously they don't do elderly woman or indifference on this show which would be completely change of pace from what pearl jam was at the time but i think that's their thought. It's like, all right, this is going to be the evolution of where we stand mentally and emotionally. And now we're going to get into the songs that could be considered a little more deeper about like a child having issues with their parents and having issues with dyslexia to black Americans that get treated unfairly by police officers to dissonant and basically being a refugee. That was really good from that standpoint that they were able to put together this album and balance it so well is really really impressive we haven't even mentioned his name yet but brendan o'brien how influential is he from this point forward into what this band sound would turn into 10 very reverb heavy very delay effect and it's a total different thing where 10 might have been where the music industry was or had been and versus is where it was going. And I think a lot of people took notice after this. So let's get into those songs. Daughter is actually announced as being titled as Daughter here, which it hadn't been on the first couple performances, I believe, in Bridge School and New Year's Eve. I believe it was still Brother. Am I correct yep. on that? Yep, believe so. This one, no doubt that they had played it a couple times. We all know from the PJ20 clip on the bus and Stone explaining the whole thing and the rhythm that they were really, really polished on this. It would be nothing like what it would turn into, but again, kind of like the confidence on Animal Go, it just flows right into this as well. It's really tough to find something in these songs that doesn't feel fleshed out. There's one there's one that's like okay maybe it needed a little work but i mean daughter it felt like they nailed from the very very beginning Yeah, it's interesting too because Stone is obviously not playing an acoustic guitar on this 
it starts off very electric and very kind of distorted, but he's playing it a different way. That opening riff, he hadn't quite nailed the classic daughter intro. And he's playing, it has a little different stutter to it. It's it's interesting. A little more open, right? Instead of like completely riffy. A little bit, yeah. Gives it a unique sound. It's not something you're used to hearing on Daughter. If you listen to it 200 times, you know, like we have. And it's really funny because what's following up on Daughter? And it wasn't developed at the time. They probably didn't know it at the time, but there's no tag. They don't do any tags on Daughter. It's just straight up played the song. However... WMA is the follow-up and maybe that's a little sign of things to come but it was probably not even thought about it think it's just a happy little coincidence there but WMA I mean those drums come in and Kathy just gushed over this and how hypnotizing those drums were and it's at that point unlike everything else that Pearl Jam had done yeah a complete 180 from the sound of 10 and the lyrics are still kind of a work in progress you can tell it's not quite what would end up on the album they probably had to go back and do some different vocal takes on it but the power behind it and the power with what dave is doing and then what stone and jeff are doing is there oh my god just to turn around and be like wait what they can pull off a song like this this is one of the highlights of the show for me. I mean, when we did the evolution on this, going back to this, is like, just wow, you see everything is there. Ed just had to go in and polish up what the meaning of it was going to be. And then we know that ended up being very powerful as well. But for everything that's happened, like Animal Go, Blood, we talked about just punching you in the face right from the beginning, going with the three hardest songs on the record. You're going to play first out of the first four songs. To then turn around and do something like this is a completely different kind of power, but still just blows you away 30 years later. some things within the song that are just highly impressive for being a debut and the thing that caught me the most was it wasn't even from verse into chorus it was from verse into sort of that build into the next verse they have this acceleration like they were about to just do this massive surge and go into a chorus 
and then once they go into another verse that verse even more powerful than the one that they just went through like that was them putting this song on display and then forget it once you dig into the choruses and you dig into the song afterwards it just it explodes it really explodes not in the same way that a go does but it's shooting through the roof you can tell just the way that that progressive beat goes and the way that the band is on target with it and how tight they were you can tell how just outstanding that this song was going to be live but you didn't have the wherewithal at the time to really know that well it wasn't quite to be it's a total shame that dave has only played a full version of this five times and we only have two and we'll never talk about it on this podcast again unless the other three have been revealed at some point in the future yeah I mean, this is just a showcase for Dave to pull out all of his bag of tricks and you hear all the little 18 symbols that he has and getting to do all the showy kind of flashy stuff that he does. And that's not to say even a negative way. He's just that kind of drummer and that's his forte. That's what he brought to the band is that kind of power and force from back there. If you're a Dave A fan, this is required listening. He's absolutely the star of this. At the end, Ed repeats, all my pieces set me free, human devices set me free, while the music cuts out. And that was pretty cool to just witness that, because that, that happened on Daughter Tags a little bit when you got and into the next This won't be the last injury. time we talk about WMA at this show. It won't. It won't. It is going to come back. Ed says, some of these songs, this is only a couple days old. You'll never see me with one of those fucking screens. I have no idea what he was talking about with screens. Oh, no, but... he's talking about the little teleprompter, like we talked about in, oh, in Rockline, yeah, yeah, yeah. where they found the lyrics to Paradise City and this whole thing. Like, right. Some bands were using screens to prompt for lyrics. See, I see screen, and I'm thinking, what phone was being yeah. recording this? I would love to know, because that means there's footage, but no, there is no footage. Dissident, and then Why Go is going to go into, but Dissident is... I think out of the six that we've heard, it feels like it needs a little bit more work to get to what it would become. What we know of it, obviously, if you've listened to this podcast before and what we've uncovered, is that this goes all the way back to Unplugged, where Stone had this riff, the main riff of the verse, and it just developed over time. Like, they would write songs on the road, and they would flesh them out and then you know they had this going into the studio in san rafael so like, yeah, this I mean, was if, something if on their mind it's only a couple of days old maybe they were looking for something and stone remembered that and was like i've got this thing it's been hanging around for a year or so like why don't we work that up and like yeah it just came together probably really quickly the song shined at the end it felt like oh, maybe yeah like mike wasn't as quiet vibrant or dynamic until you kind of hit that point at the end where he's just wailing away and it's also a very early sign that ed wanted nothing to do with that final note hitting that high spot he didn't do the sarcastic but he just didn't even go for it on that so sign of things to come when it came to distance
really picks up in the middle and in the bridge and then going away to the end. Like, that's the killer part that gets the song together. And we made him realize, like, hey, we've got something here. Because the riff is one thing, but when that middle part hits into the end, then Mike can let loose and then it becomes something really special. Back to some familiarity. There's going to be a couple 10 songs packaged here. Why go? Pick it up right where it left off in 1992. Very bombastic and powerful. And then we're going to get a live where Mike has a really, really good show and he's on display yet again. But in between Why Go and Alive, not to break it up linear or anything like that, but you do hear Mike do a piece of eruption. Ed says, we're not into dedicating songs. That seems mm-hmm. silly. But we dedicate a show like we did tonight. And and now it's like eight dedications a show oh, yeah. on average. Yeah, yeah, every song is dedicated now. Yeah. Right. And he says, we'll dedicate a show like we did tonight. Did you see, did you guys see the flyer? That's what Kathy was talking about before. I'll dedicate this one to my uncle, Freddie Vetter, who's here. I just want to tell him he's really fucking cool. What about why going alive? And again, like this show isn't about the 10 songs. These kind of in a weird way feel like the filler, but anything to talk about here? Yeah, it's weird. They almost feel like an afterthought because we're in the middle of all these very interesting debuts. But why go just listening to Dave again, like pounding away, like you can see where the seeds of WMA and and a couple of the other things like Rearview Mirror, which we're going to talk about really soon. But just listening to Dave play on these, we hadn't heard that in a long time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And once November comes across, we will be able to hear Dave a lot because we are going to be sticking in this timeline of 1993 so get used to that not too difficult to do before hard to imagine and this is really interesting because it's not mentioned as a live debut but it really should be this is the full formation of hard to imagine but of course as we talked about before hard to imagine was the noodled song from 1992, the Lollapalooza shows where they would go into either an improv, sometimes Stone would just do the and that was it. But it's funny because actually you hear before hard to imagine a little noodle of something else. That would be a Rolling Stones song, Beast of Burden, which was yeah. getting noodled a lot at the time. It made me think like, I wonder if hard to imagine is, I won't, I won't say based on, but maybe influenced by or some homage to Beast of Burden. Like, they're not dissimilar if you really think about it. I guess it's not something I thought about. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm going to have to reserve comment for that yeah. after that really gets into my head. Because I, I just don't know. Maybe Especially just one influenced the other. We'll have to get maybe. out here to see if they're similar guitar-wise. Yeah, his his take will be much more defined than mine. But Mike is the Stones guy, not like Stone isn't a Stones guy. I mean, you know, they share a name, so it probably has to be. But he wrote Hard to Imagine. I don't know if there is a direct link, but hey, look, it's something fun to think about, right? I mean, he could have heard Mike playing Beast of Burden and be like, hey, if I change this and move this chord to here, then we we maybe have something. That is something maybe we get Javier on a bonus for that. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's a gear garage at some point in the future. So it was kind of inevitable that Hard to Imagine would become a song after all that. It was recorded for this album, then recorded yet again for Vitalogy, which was used on the Chicago Cab soundtrack, and then yet again for No Code, 
And where does this song end up? As a lost dog. Really, a story of defeat in this band. But I mean, it's so triumphant when they play it now that it doesn't even matter. But like, I can see why maybe it didn't really translate with the band immediately. It felt a little underconfident with these lyrics and spots. The soaring aspect, once you built to it and the band kind of put it all together, it was perfect. But I think once it came to later, they would really polish up and know how to capitalize off of that. But we saw it a little bit here, not the whole way through where they're taking you on a journey. It's not quite a journey soaring song, so to speak, yet, but it does have a nice little surge and it does take you to a pretty good place. Oh yeah, again, similar to Dissonant, it really picks up about halfway through and then towards the end it gets very, very good. I can almost see this like in a world where indifference doesn't exist, this may be your album closer if you were going to fit it in. Just because the way that ending goes and the way you end with Stone going and then Mike and it, the whole band kicks up and it's maybe the best ending. Like Even the two that we're not to talk about don't have the ending that Hard to Imagine does here, and they would later, but I could totally see this being an album closer if Difference hadn't been written. Can't say they really gave it a fair shake, but look, as we know of it now, it has turned into one of the most powerful songs that you can get on that stage. Rear Mirror and Better Man. We're going to talk about both songs separately, but they deserve to be kind of packaged in a way because these are both songs, it's kind of rare at the time, we're now starting to see Ed play guitar at these shows. That's why they are packaged together, back-to-back, back, so Ed doesn't have to take the guitar off. They can just go seamlessly one to the other. So, Rearview Mirror, of course, we all know and love this song. It's one of their best live tracks of their whole entire catalog. It does go through some growing pains. 
this is kind of the one that I was teeing up before that I thought mm. like had a little bit of something, but it still really needed time to flesh out. We did the evolution on that uh, a long time ago, and we basically discussed all of it. There's growing pains, and I get it. They went through 10 songs, and most of those were debuts. So you get to that point, and you're like, something's going to give, and it's just a lot to remember. I get that, but Ed had a tough time with the lyrics. And then while the ending was extremely powerful and gave you that rearview mirror classic feel to it, there was the ending, and we kind of know the story with the ending when it was recorded that Dave had a really, really tough time with it, that Brendan O'Brien kept pushing him. They kept pushing him. They kept pushing him. And of course, we know that sound effect that happens after the song ends, Dave throwing his sticks against the wall. He doesn't go for it on this. It changes tempo a little bit in order maybe to be sort of the gap of getting more comfortable and leading up to him actually doing that in full force but it's not quite there yet yeah it's almost like if rearview mirror is a science experiment and this is the control this is the basic standard version it's very close to the way it sounds on the record there's no intense jam in the middle of it there's no noodling around there's no experimental stuff going on it's just a run through it like you said ed not super confident on it yet but you can tell it's gonna be something with Go and Animal. Like the seeds are there, that this is gonna be something very, very cool. It would quickly become something else and they would build on what they did here to make it something special live. For sure. It didn't take them too long either. Like once no. they kicked into those summer shows, opening up for Neil and going into some other places, River Mirror became River Mirror rather quickly. So yeah, no issue on that. Ed, before Better Man, he says, I think this one is going to be on a Greenpeace record because we're trying real hard to save the world. We know as a band we can do it single-handedly. It's a small world after all. And look, you know, in ways, 30 years later, it's tough to say, have they saved the world? No. The world, I think, is probably, seeing what's going on in Israel right now, no. The world is not saved. And my condolences to anybody that knows anybody over there that has suffered, because I have family members and 
thankfully everybody's okay, but I did have a cousin that needed to take shelter. But, you know, they're in the north and the war's going on in the south. So we're always thinking about you and just wanted to throw that out there because it, it's real scary stuff that's going on right now. So this is OG Better Man. Of course, we kind of talked about it before. Came from Bad Radio, and Bad Radio's version was a little bit different from this. And then, obviously not used for this record, but would be used for Vitalogy. So this is the earliest indication of what this song would be, but not quite yet what it would become. the story that Brendan O'Brien was really fighting for this to be on the record and was like guys like this is it this is the hit song it's gonna take over radio this is the one and that was the completely wrong thing to say to Ed who didn't want that on this record and the story is he was gonna give it to Chrissy Hind to record I think that was gonna be on the Greenpeace record and then like backed off at the last minute but Ed still saved it and then when you get to Vitalogy and then when they did that Atlanta version at the Fox Theater, Brendan was like, oh, what if we take this from this and mix it here and put that there? And then they finally got the version that we come to know. But this is very embryonic here, this version of Better Man. Kathy mentioned it too. Like, I think this is like a bad radio song. Is this like a cover? They're doing bad radio songs now? Like, it definitely feels different than everything else that's being debuted here. It's good that you mentioned the whole Brendan O'Brien factor because one of the things I went back and I listened to the demo for Vitalogy. I don't believe we really have the versus demo for this, unfortunately, but you'd have to think it kind of sounds like this. So the Vitalogy demo is just Ed and Brendan. It's actually like very angelic. If you haven't heard it yet, it's pretty beautiful. And he's singing over Brendan playing the keys. It's on the box set, right? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. So you hear that version and you hear what this version is, that kind of rolling drum intro where you kind of hear those clicks in the beginning and there's no at any point Ed in the beginning doing that like very clean and very isolated track to start the song and then build into what the song would become. I feel like that was sort of the handshake agreement here that they would create this song and turn it into an amalgamation of both of those versions and look i don't think better man becomes a massive massive hit 
if it stays like how they had it on Versus, but the way they put it together and the way that it kind of gets developed and the ideas get thrown out there, it was good that it needed this time. Because I'm wondering if Ed finally, when it came to Vitalogy, if he was accepting of it because they had turned it into what it became. Yeah, that whole like sound effect thing at the beginning where they're trying to fuck with it. Like, oh, if you want to hear this, you got to sit through this weird spooky sound thing first. But yeah, if it had been on verses in this form, like Brennan's right. Like it would have been this huge radio hit and that's not what they needed right then. Obviously, when you think of the MTV factor, none of these made MTV. I think the only thing that was in circulation was the animal VMA performance. That was probably it. So that was well, 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 not on their minds at all. But this feels, in a way, I don't want to call it like garage bandish, but compared to what Better Man is, it kind of is. You know, as I mentioned before, the original bad radio recording sounds a little bit like the police and maybe kind of a little bit of Genesis thrown in there, too. That English beat new wave thing, too. Yeah, well, of course, that has to be thrown in there, yeah. But, I, I mean, the song is so personal to Ed, and I think it just needed to be perfected before the public knew what it was about. Stone says they're taking requests. And apparently there are a lot of people listening to B-sides in that crowd. You don't hear what the crowd is saying, but I wonder if there's any Leadbetter thrown out there. I'm wondering if there's any I've Got a Feeling. And I don't have too, too many B-sides. I'm sure there's not a lot of people that know Just a Girl just yet. Oh, no, I think they were all yelling for this one. I would say that maybe one or two people wanted lead better, but yeah, I think dirty Even Frank. Back then, it was already a thing. I'm sure everybody that's there that's a Pearl Jam fan is probably a fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers too. So Ed's taking the request and he's kind of going through, and it doesn't seem like he likes many of the options. And I think he's just very confused because everybody's just shouting at him. So he's like, "Well, okay, one at a time. Raise your hands." And then he kind of isolates somebody. He's like, okay, this guy, just be quiet so we can hear him. That guy had the song that apparently everybody wanted, Dirty Frank. says, all right, I'm going to make up some of the words if you don't mind. And I don't think he got one of the words wrong. I think he nailed it. Yeah, and it's only a couple of minutes. Like He doesn't get to the later parts of the song where it gets a little dicey with him. But yeah, they run through it pretty well. It was condensed. Yeah. I I never thought that Mike McCready's Ben 8 line was so early in the song. I thought that that was closer to the end. So maybe some of the jam aspect was sort of cut out of that. And this set list, if you look at the set list, the only things that were planned in order were those first seven. And then everything after that was kind of put on a box on the bottom. And probably yeah. in between songs, they were just like, okay, this and this. So I think Dirty Frank, okay, well, what goes with this that we can do? Rats is on the set list. And more so than Dirty Frank being the story, I think the story is how Dirty Frank transitions flawlessly into Rats. Oh my goodness.
I love when they can do those transitions where they can make it work. Habit into MFC was one that they perfected. Obviously, looking into Not For You, and then later it would be setting forth into Not For You in some occasions. But this is the all-time best transition in between two songs. Imagine if they did this now. Oh, goodness. If they did this in 2023, that would be the number one or number two on our oh, you know, yeah, top 25 one, of the year. Without a doubt, yeah. This is an insane version of Rats. The Atlanta version is very, very good, but this one is just, I mean, Ed again. You just wonder, like, being in that confined space up in San Rafael, he was ready to get to a small club and let these songs loose. And Rats, I think, is almost nearly six minutes, and it goes on for a long time. And like you said, the transition is impeccable. But yeah, Rats is one of the absolute highlights from this show, an unbelievable performance. I think what makes it so good, that transition, is that like that bass line comes in, and kind of in the back, it sounds like maybe Stone is doing this little palm-muted riff, and then the bass comes bouncing, and you're almost like, well, is that sort of a tie-in to Dirty Frank somehow? Like, is this just a jam off of Dirty Frank? Yeah. And then... Obviously, improvs were not a rarity at the time. It was a very, very normal part of Pearl Jam setlist and honestly a, a staple from time to time. But it almost felt like if they didn't have a course for that, that it could have been on that same plane as being an improv. Yeah, it's Jeff's baseline when that comes in. It's so smooth and so fucking. Then Dave latches onto it immediately, and Stone's there, and you can tell it has that feel around it. But then Rats kicks in, and the vocals kicking. Like, oh, this is something. Practice. This is a real song now. Song still needed some work. It still needed some work. <laughs> I think that some of the spots, like especially that little pause in the beginning before getting to the they don't eat, they don't sleep there were certain aspects of that that weren't in this. It kind of felt like everything was condensed in a way where transitions from verse to chorus felt just sort of melted together and didn't have those little, little pieces that binded the song. And maybe this was the reason why this song 30 years later had only been played 61 times because very early on they couldn't quite find exactly what it was but for the transition itself just the best i've ever heard ever so ed says okay you know how it's done raise your hand let's try another method here just play this little jazzy thing in the background it's not experimental jazz free jazz but ed is sort of figuring this out he says the secret song is and then no one really knows what to do until kind of hear that noodle of Bob O'Reilly. And that's what is going to happen. This is really the dividing point of the set where mm-hmm. everything after this is going to be very much from the 10 side. They're going to have one more debut later in Whipping, and then Alone would kind of feel like the deep, deep, deep cut. But from this point forward, this is like everything that this crowd had been listening to for a year and a half at this point. A little weird that Baba is kind of in the middle here, of course, what we know of history. It's not like Rick Nielsen was coming out or anything like that, but still feels a little weird. But it's also injecting something more familiar 
into this and the last five that you hear here are either brand new songs or b-sides that rarely get brought about so baba has to be really exciting it's a song that every single person's going to know so when it's their chance to sing it they're going to be right on top and really you know outside of even flowing alive this crowd has zero opportunities to sing anything yeah just struck me as again really loose and really fun like Pearl Jam is taking requests at a club that holds 900 people. Like, yeah, they're not going to take it super seriously. They've gotten through almost everything that they wanted to get through. Now they can kind of relax and play around and show kind of a different side of them. And yeah, Bob O'Reilly just seems like a bunch of kids playing in a garage down the street. You know, they're just having fun with it. And then Ed says right after that, okay, no more of this funny shit. And then from here on out, it's again, all 10. So... Once is going to follow that, and it's right on par with what they were doing in 1992. It feels right there, and no rust on it or anything. You got to think the last time that they played was on New Year's Eve, so it's been five months. But Ed is in that mood when he's out there just screaming, I've got nothing to say, but fuck you. That was a cool moment in the song, but Mm -hmm. once definitely brings you into what the Versus era is going to be just by staying what it was. Yeah, looking at live footsteps here, the last version was Drop in the Park, and that's a very different style Pearl Jam show than this one is. But oh, yeah. like I said, we're getting the transition, and we're going to get a bunch of 10 songs in a row here up until the end. And yeah, once, and then the next one kind of feels like, uh, the, Jeremy especially next, seems like they're fucking with a little bit. But once is a little bit like, okay, like Ed says, like let's get back to business here. One song from 10 that they are not going to play on this night, and this is a little bit of a shocker that Ed says this, but you know what? Sometimes when you're in a band, you get sick of your own songs. So I'll tell you what, Black, I've heard that song too much lately anyways. Ed's down on Black, and I wonder if it was like the whole unplugged thing, and we've always talked about how personal that one is to him, and you know, maybe people weren't really getting it, and you know, maybe people were just trying to decipher it in ways that Ed wanted no business with. And again, but, this is not really a show where you need a song like Black. It's not. Yeah, it wouldn't really fit in, but I mean, people are requesting it. He has to go in and talk about it, but yeah, God, but the way we've been on a tear on Black, it almost would have been too much to have it here. <laughs> You hear a little snippet of LaGrange in the background. That's probably Mike playing that. He seems like a ZZ Tough kind of guy. Says, so we've been in your town for a while. We're going to leave tomorrow, and we're accepting any donations of LSD before we leave. Give me the acid in an envelope with your name on it, and if we write a great song while we're on it, you'll get your name on the credits. So... Who got their name on the credits for this version of Jeremy is what I want to know, because they were... Or maybe on something when they did this. Yeah, the the LSD was kicking in at that point.
Yeah, it's not no Jeremy, but I'm going to call it low energy Jeremy because it felt like maybe they didn't want to play it or maybe they just kind of wanted it to sarcastically kind of butcher it just to say like fuck our singles kind of deal so going back to hearing it too much lately yep Mm -hmm. already fucking with it a little bit yeah it's very clear that they're tired of it and you know this crowd is mostly fan club level bands so they can fuck around with their biggest hit as long as this crowd isn't rioting and it sounds like they're just enjoying it because anything is enjoyable from this band at this point but yeah, this is not quite what you know of Jeremy at all. You're not gonna get a full-throated like anthemic Jeremy at a small club like this when they've got all these new songs to go. Like that's just just not where they were at. Like they're trying to turn the page a little bit on Ten and be like, we're a different band now. They're kind of like closing the door on that era. Like we're not that band anymore. We're changing and we're evolving, and this is who we are now. Well, if Jeremy's not anthemic at this show, then this is. Now, we told the story a little bit before that this show kind of happens because Cindy Lauper has to cancel. And in ode to that, and kind of maybe as a thank you to Cindy Lauper, Ed starts singing Girls Just Want to Have Fun. quick thing but people still kind of talk about this to this day as sort of one of the weirdest things that they've ever sampled Mm. it's not a lot i think there's probably when you get the dirty deeds after alone there's more dirty deeds than there is girls just want to have fun Yeah. yeah but it's still like people see that and attach it to pearl jam they're like what the fuck is this like how are these two connected in any way possible yeah, I mean, you know, we know now that it's the venue, like, she was going to play there, so he's, you know, just in case you came for Cindy Lauper, we're going to give you a little taste of what you would have gotten. I like it. It means he's just fucking around and being funny, because think of yeah. the other bands would, like, I don't know, would Alice in Chains do Cindy Lauper? No? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to say no. Maybe Cornell <laughs> would fuck with it a little bit. Onward and forward, but, yeah, just kind of why they're different, I suppose. I mean, maybe the weirdest thing about this is that it's a lead into Porch. Now, Porch is where we run out of tape in this, and Porch is the one that got to rewind the whole way, and we only have about three and a half minutes of this, but you do hear a lot. You hear, as we're going back to WMA here, hear Ed sort of doing this improv somewhere in between. It sounds a little like WMA, but it also sounds... Like the way that he's reciting the lyrics, kind of like saying no, too.
there's a really good Aberziz solo on this. It gets super aggressive, and then he goes back, and we get a little bit of a WMA tag into the Rollins Band tearing, which goes on for a little while, which, again, super cool and, like, of this era and wouldn't continue much past 93, 94. But, yeah, like, a really super aggressive porch. Like, Ed lends some of that versus aggression out on this one. You actually had the full version of Porch, so you heard the whole thing. I didn't get to hear yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And what I want to know is, does it feel like after Porch that they break? Because this would be the encore moment. Yeah, it doesn't. I think it's only about 10 or 15 seconds. It doesn't feel like they left and came back. All right, yeah. then. I did, uh, I did is, look for that. It has been passed through history correctly then. So yeah. call this one of the weird things in this set, too, that... We're getting release that's after porch. That is a one and done, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think kind of in the same way of Jeremy, it feels like release is a little low energy here. And maybe I'm saying that because it's not a true staple of a club kind of show. What we know now, it soars in arenas and it soars in the outdoors. So maybe when you don't get that aspect, it doesn't feel like the impact is that apparent. Do you share the same thought here? Because this actually, I got to throw in this stat because this is the last time that release would be used as a non-opener until 2008. So that's 15 years that would happen. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, again, felt more loose. I think it's weird to hear it here after Porch, but still great. I mean, Ed can still channel something on it, something really powerful on it. It does feel like in your brain, you're like, oh, this is an encore break, even though it's really not. So you kind of have like a demarcation point there of like, okay, now things are going to be different. We're stopping and we're changing, even though that doesn't really happen. It's only 10 or 15 seconds, maybe, that they take a little break, but... It gives you kind of a moment to reset it because like you can't really come with anything else after porch. You have to do something that's a complete 180 after something that energetic and that crazy. So it makes sense. But again, yeah, not one of those powerful like opening versions that soars and everything like that with that you get the full big moment on. You know, within all of the debuts that are obviously the full theme of the show, Another, like, maybe side story theme is just all of the snippets of songs that they're doing in between songs. Yeah. You get a really quick Suck My Kiss riff in there. Blink and you miss it kind of things. However you blink with your ears, you miss it. But that's what happens there. And that gets you into the ultimate B-side of the very early 90s, Alone. Alone had a good time of it before the record came out when they were doing it live before August that year, before Dave. Like, Dave played his first version on it in February at some of the European shows, and that didn't happen very often. They did it on a little bit of a run. I believe it did five shows in Europe and then got held off for all of the U.S. tour in Lollapalooza 
and not brought back until New Year's Eve. So Alone is way off their radar. They're not involving it because maybe they don't feel the same way that they do about the 10 songs. Maybe they kind of realize it's not one that attracts the crowd as much as some of the other ones do. It's not a pristine, awesome performance of Alone. I thought that Alone could have been like the big standout. I didn't think it was, but I mean, I love some of the pieces in this and kind of singing over and over again. I can't help myself. I can't help myself. And then doing the final stanza at the end, that's always my favorite part of Alone. So at least that kind of sticks in. But until this song really becomes bait for nostalgia, this didn't really gel live like it should have. Yeah, it's interesting because it goes back to Off Ramp 1990, right? Like they, yeah, they, they played it at the very first show. and It's actually song number two. Yeah, yeah. And we know it was recorded for verses. Like it's on the Go single has Alone as a B-side. They had it on their mind. And like, again, I think that this is probably another request that someone's yelling out. They knew by then probably that it wasn't going to make the final record, but someone wants to hear it and they had just done it on new year's eve so yeah why not and like it doesn't have some of the bite that some of that versus stuff does it's more of a throwback song obviously to the very first show like i mentioned but yeah just a little treat for the fans there to get something like this and that's what it would be from here on out just a little special something for as ed always says like for the collectors oh yeah especially for that song and going back to the off-ramp one and two back to back because release yeah. was the first song alone was yeah. the second right. so there you have that now ed asked the crowd if they're bored and want to go home they all say no and stone starts a little bit of the riff to dirty deeds done dirt cheap This is more polished of a snippet thing than some of the other stuff that they did on this night, especially Cindy Lauper. But imagine what they can do with a full cover of Dirty Deeds. That would be a really cool because ACDC is not something they ever go back to. Yeah. But maybe this would know. be the one. I don't know. I mean, I, I'll pass on the Pearl Jam cover of Dirty Deeds. You can keep that one. They're so singular in what they do. It's like if any band covers them, it feels like you're Thursday night at the Applebee's. You know, it's it's not really what Pearl Jam does. I don't get Applebee's the credit. <laughs> Down at the local watering hole. Yeah, right. Town Saloon. Yeah. Well, there is another tie-in. Uh, Ed saying Highway to Hell with Bruce. So I don't know how much of a tie-in that is, but... Mm. As we all know, ACDC isn't really one of those bands that comes up when you think about the influences to Pearl Jam. It's not up right. there with The Who or Fugazi or The Stones or Neil Young. They are ACDC, and they're everywhere. Even now, they're still everywhere. We get our final debut of the night. It comes from a song that would not make the record, but 
It would start to make an impact later on this year. They would start to tour regularly, and Whipping would be on the set a lot, more often than not, maybe. It's another one that Ed's going to put on the guitar for, and this Unleash back-to-back, I think you got to go home strong, and especially Sonic Reducer at the end. You got to get this place fired up and moving, so I didn't notice any flub. I didn't notice any growing pains within the song. I thought they went out and they did a really good version of Whipping. Yeah, this is really interesting because you've gotten the last five or six songs, I mean, like you've gone back to a lot of the 10 stuff, and alone and then like you're getting these throwaways you're getting dirty deeds and girls just want to have fun and so on and so forth and if i'm in the crowd i'm thinking like oh okay like we're kind of over the new stuff we're getting to the sloppier part of the show here and then whipping comes in and you're like wait they just had this in their back pocket just to say like another one that just kind of punches you in the face here at the end like oh by the way we have this too like what the fuck dude like you're gonna save this for like the 21st song this could have been in that opening three or four and been really powerful right up there with like go and blood now but about to say after this, blood that would have been perfect yeah to, to pull this out late is just like oh by the way we can still do this they fuck with you yeah they fuck with you in so many different ways and i guess this was just one of them but i wonder if they really thought and pushed for this to be on the album at the time or if they kind of knew, well, we're not ready to put this on yet. I don't know. Yeah. I think they knew because they feature Animal Go and Blood early on. And those yeah. would have been the, the similar songs to Whipping. Like, I don't think if they would have put Go and Whipping on the same record at this point. They were, again, wanting to show more of the diversity and the eclecticness of their sound and wanting to expand the sound and not wanting to be pigeonholed into just doing one thing. So I think by this point, this tells you that Whipping wasn't going to make the cut, and like they would have featured it early on if they knew it was going to be on the record. I don't disagree with that. I think that's a really yeah. good point. Ed says, we recorded up here in the hills of San Rafael. It was cool. The people that work there made it so we can concentrate on music and stuff and play a little softball while you're there, too. They are all here tonight, so us playing is kind of a going-away present to them. We should all give a hand to the people at the site. Such a nice place, and I'm never going to go record there again. <laughs> Ed did not like being yeah. at the Versus Sessions. Period. He did not like it. Let's end the show on out. Leash, which is the veteran Versus song that if you had gone to a show the previous year, you probably had heard it. And then Sonic Reducer is going to close it out. So... Weird, weird stat, but Leash at that point had been played 60 times. 
yeah, almost half of its plays happened before the record even came out. You think um, that's a record? That has to be the record, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. But again, at this point, I mentioned earlier, we are getting a little sloppy here at the end. The leash solo is way off key, does not sound great. And then Sonic Reducer is a very loose, kind of sloppier version, which suits the song. I mean, you know, it is what it is. But don't come in expecting them to be super tight 22, 23 songs into this thing. Yeah, that first chord on Sonic Reducer, that's the moment when you hear Sonic Reducer, you hear that, mm-hmm. like my eyes always widen. And when they kind of do it, it's like, like it just does not identify with the song. Yeah, they pick it back up in parts, channel some intensity to finish off strongly, but yeah. that's, that's a really sloppy tone for this. So, gotta think there's some shenanigans going on stage two. Obviously, we don't have a video, but gotta think there's a little bit of craziness going on here at the end of this thing. I'd assume so. But you know what? As far as songs being played, this is not the most perfectly played show, and it didn't need to be. That'll come back up in just a minute when we start talking about this in the grand scheme of things. Let's pick some top three moments here. I'm going to go number three. My number three is going to be Animal. Just right from the jump, kicking you right in the teeth and telling you, this is our record, like it or not. And I think everybody agrees it was going to be a great record. Number two, I'd actually consider putting this number one, but I think I'm going to put this number two It's the Dirty Frank Rats transition. That's just absolutely dirty. Oh, no pun intended there, but, I mean, they'll never do a transition in between any two songs like they did here. It's just completely filthy. And then my number one is going to be WMA, because I just thought that that had so much power behind it, especially that we don't get to hear too many full versions of this from the very early 90s it is important to kind of go back and cherish what you have and what we have here is definitely a sign of things that should have came well i think we're done here because mine are exactly the same that's a first if (laughs) if i was second then i probably would have changed one of them up but and and i and i'm looking at this and i thought about it i'm like well maybe i should like to a pivot last minute, but but no, those are the three. Those are the three. Those are the three. And I mean, if both of us say it, that means it's universal. So you guys can't pick any other three from this show. There's no better man. There's no daughter from this. These are the three, you guys. If anybody tells you differently, have them come speak to the manager. Let's rate this. As I said a couple minutes ago, this is not the most pristine, perfect show playing every single song and being on top of them. And it's not meant to be. This show, from a historic standpoint, is, to me, top 10 most important because it defines what was to come for an extremely important era of the band. It's the first... That feels like when they developed the whole 10 club and the 10 clubs around, but like 10 club mentality of putting together some of these 
1994, they'd have a bunch of 10 club specific shows and obviously Honk and Seals, Piss Bottle Men, the Showbox show from 96. Like there were a lot of fan treatment shows. You can even go to the Apollo last year if you want to consider that very similar that you had to be in the right place, right time to get tickets in a way. But it is the first of a very important sort of lineage that this band has. And then on top of that, you throw in all of the brand new songs and how, especially in the very beginning, all those songs just hit the spot right on the money. Even when you get to rear view mirror and hard to imagine and rats that aren't totally fleshed out and aren't going to be at this moment, exactly what they turn into. But you just know that something good is coming down the line and it's just so much fun to look back at a show like this and say that was then and and this is now but we needed to get there somehow and this was it i wouldn't have asked for any other scenario to get us from point a to point b 100 percent number 10 while you were talking then i was thinking and like this show it almost is a throwback to off-ramp and that it's like, it's the beginning of something. It's the changing of the guard. You mentioned they had done release into alone there late on. And those are the first two songs of the off-ramp and Jeff mentioning from PJ 20 book that they had had the gear and were getting ready to leave and just decided to pack up the year and go play. And we know that that was the story about an off-ramp too. They were just practicing for that week and then let's go play a show kind of off the cuff. So they're, kind of brother-sister shows in that way, I think a little bit more like the small club feel as well. But yeah, this feels like a mission statement for the band as to, like I said earlier, we're closing the door on the 10 era and we're going to show you what we can really do now with more time and more experience and better songwriting. And everything just got better, it felt like, in 1993. Like everything was ramped up. This is a perfect 10 show, hands down. Well, Indiana Jones, you have the floor here. Where does it belong? That belongs in a museum! That, my friends, is going into the Hall of Fame of shows. We haven't had as many perfect tens as we had in the previous years, but we're at four now. I think that's pretty solid, with potential for maybe a couple more to come once we get later in the year and look we're down to mm, rough math probably about seven or eight episodes left nine nine Nine. there's a lot of potential out there to get some more gold-plated shows to share with you guys but i mean there was no doubt about this one absolutely no doubt this one is a keeper next week we'll ask the same question is that one a keeper I have a different experience from it than John's going to bring to the table, but it is hands down one of my favorite shows that I've ever been to. You guys all know I am about to become a former Connecticut guy in the next month or two, and I've been a champion for the Hartford shows and letting the world know that it's one of the best crowds on the planet. And I'd only been to two of the six. The first one in 2010, 
I didn't really get that from the crowd. I got that there was a good crowd and there are great moments when looking back, but I wasn't sitting there saying, wow, what a crowd. This show in 2013, I probably said that every five minutes. It was that good. We've been sitting on this episode for a very, very long time, but since it's the 10-year anniversary of Lightning Bolt, along with the 30th anniversary of Versus, we couldn't not touch up on it. So, art for 2013 next week, buckle up, because I'll have a lot to say on that. Hey, we didn't have a Patreon break, so just a reminder, if you guys want to donate to the show, then please help us out. Head over to patreon.com slash live on four legs or download the Patreon app and search for live on four legs or go to live on four legs.com. Give us a website hit and then click that become a patron button to help us because we plan to do more tour stuff next year and that all kind of helps us put it all together. So if you're interested in that and exclusive episodes, we mentioned a lot of the evolution series because this is kind of a lot of the Evolution Series episodes that we've done have gone through this show. How could it not? But a lot of episodes are over on Patreon that you can listen to. There's a lot of different material over there from full shows to bird school shows to late night TV performances. A lot there that you guys can go through. And there's a lot to enjoy. So that you get from donating to this show as low as a dollar a month. And it's all good stuff. And we thank the many, 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 many people that continue to donate to this day. Well, on top of that, if you are subscribed to the show on a platform like, say, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, then you have the opportunity to help us out. You see, there is a rating system, a little star rating system on both of those platforms. And if you're not on either of those platforms, if the platform you listen to on has a star system, then feel free to rate us five on that. But we really appreciate it if you can give us the five stars on either of those platforms, because that always helps the visibility and it tells us that we're doing the right thing. And we know we've been researching and this episode, of course, it's one that you really have to put a lot of effort into. But if it wasn't for Kathy Davis, we wouldn't have had anywhere close to the episode that we did. So again, massive, massive, massive thanks to her. But if you want to give us the five stars, you can do so there. And on Apple Podcasts, if you feel like leaving a comment, and the comment isn't just for us, it's for the next person that's looking to listen to a Pearl Jam podcast. And we would be honored if we would be the one. Everybody has shows that they've been to and history that they want to learn. This is a good historical show from that standpoint. So if we can reconnect people with their memories or some bootlegs that they used to own, then we have done our job here, but it's all up to you to tell them and share with them how we all put it together. So appreciate if you guys do that as always. And thank you so much for all of your support. Hopefully you really enjoyed this one because there was a lot. How can there not be? Once again, big thank you to Kathy Davis for really making this episode shine. With that being said, this may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Oh boy. John, how long have you been waiting for me to talk about this show next week? A long time, huh? Ugh. We'll see you then. Hmm. Mm.
Oh, oh, oh.